6, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. We're continuing in a multi-part series on kind of a strange topic to be preaching on, deacons. <laughs> I don't know how many of you have been in church and got sermons on deacons before, but we're, uh, we're doing it, and uh, we're going to go through this text. That's the beauty of expository preaching is you get to preach the whole counsel of God's Word, not just your favorite five subjects or whatever, but what it is. And not that I don't like the deacons. I'm not trying to say I don't like the deacons. <laughs> I'm just saying that it's, uh, it's a little bit offbeat here for some people. Acts chapter 6, we'll read, uh, start by reading verses 1 through 7. And if you follow along, the Lord will bless you with some wisdom we, we trust this morning. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The Word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Now, we started this last time, and we saw that what we're finding here in the church is the emergence of a second tier of leaders. The first tier of leaders, everyone knew, they're the apostles. Since there's only one local church at this time, the apostles were not only foundational for the universal church, they were also the elders or the pastors of this local church as well. They're going to be spread later in their career as apostles, and they will move on and plant churches. But at this stage, they're elders. They are pastors. They're overseers of the local church of Jerusalem. And a problem arises, and a second tier, a second level of leaders is necessary. And we kind of see this unfold in the text through the natural divisions that are there. Verse 1 presents the problem, right? Tells us what the problem is. Now, we don't have the problem they have. That's not the point. As you listen to that, hopefully you'll realize that there are other problems that develop. But this was a problem. Their problem developed. That's verse 1. And then next we see the solution. Every problem needs a solution. So that's what the text naturally leads us into in verses 2 through 6. We just barely started that last time. And then the third is the result. The result. And we want to look at that because I think that ties in as well. Let's just review a little bit about the problem from verse 1. Remember what the context of the problem was. The saints were increasing in number. Church growth. It was growing rapidly. This problem happens right in the middle of rapid growth. That's not hard to understand. Churches that grow quickly are not able maybe to cover all the problems that they have. This church was growing not just quickly. It was growing enormously, maybe even exponentially. And so this problem arose there. Um, You'll note that the passage begins and ends with the note of church growth. It talks about disciples, mathetes, the followers of Jesus, increasing. In the midst of this, there was a a minority group, the the Hellenists, who spoke 
They were Jews, but they spoke Greek. They were from the surrounding area. They'd come back to the area around Israel. They were a minority. Some scholars say maybe 10% of the population, maybe 20% of the population. Um, But they were being overlooked. Their widows were being overlooked in the daily rations. The doling out of these rations were important to these needy people, and they were being overlooked. So from their side, a complaint arose from the minority group, the Hellenists, to the majority group here, the Hebrews, those that were Jews but spoke Hebrew. And the oversight, together with the hurt feeling of that, was not a small problem. It could easily have been fanned by the devil to divide the church. So when the news somehow made its way to the ears of the apostles, they believed the complaint was legitimate. Whoever was informing them was giving them good information, and they saw through that line of communication that this indeed was a problem that could not just be dealt with in a quick kind of way. They were the pastors of the local church, and so they said the best way to do this is bring the whole church together, have everyone together, and let's deal with this problem, and let's get it solved. And they did it immediately, and I think there's a lot of wisdom to that. And that led us last time to number two, and that's the solution, and we started it. Look at verse two there again, where the solution starts. It says, so the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples, that's the church, the congregation of the disciples, and said... It is not desirable for us to neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables. They knew where this was going. They knew what the people would expect, that we're going to want you to solve this personally and directly. And they understood that this would be expected of them as leaders, but they, they realized that that would not be a good solution to the problem. So they kind of curtailed that from the beginning. The 12 is clearly a reference to the 12 apostles. Um, it's they who summoned the entire congregation. Notice that the congregation is responsive to their leadership. They said that the solution to the problem could not involve their time to serve the tables, not that there's anything wrong with serving the tables, but to do that, they would need to neglect to some degree their broader and more important ministry of getting the Word of God out, to preach and teach the Word of God. They said, look, that's not what the Lord Jesus called us to do. He didn't lay His hands on us to take care of widows. He laid His hands on us and then charged us, said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, and this is what we have to do. This is our calling. We've already seen that the apostles were busy doing this, having been handpicked by Christ. They were spokespersons. They understood the gravity of that job. They understood it was the priority. They understood how enormous it was. They understood the eternal implications of that. They had a solemn responsibility, and they took that very seriously. And elders and pastors today, they're not apostles, they're not prophets, but they have a calling from God too, to to study the Word of God, to teach the Word of God, to preach the Word of God, and that weighs heavily on every pastor who loves God and loves His Word. It weighs even more heavily on those that are called full-time to abandon every occupation in this world and to give their heart entirely to the promotion of the Word of God in their local congregation and beyond that as well. And so... This is a serious issue, really, and it weighed on their hearts. It weighs on my heart to a degree that our leadership structure is properly functioning in this church so that the elders can do what the elders know how to do and let other men do what they can probably do better anyways and keep uh, the elders and the pastors on their calling. So we come today to kind of the solution proper in verse 3. Would you look at it? There's a lot of wisdom here. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men 
of good reputation, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. Verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. That's the solution. There it is. That's what they called for. The apostles, the shepherds of the people, they're going to stick to the ministry of the Word and prayer. So other qualified men, other recognized men must now step up and they must remedy this problem. Truly, there's a wealth of wisdom from God in this text uh, for, for how to run a church properly, a lot of wisdom that is in here. I think we can glean some of that wisdom here. I'd like us to do that today by looking at some of the observations of what they did, what they didn't do, thinking about their solution, pulling out some wisdom for a congregation like ours and using that as well. So I'm going to use these observations. We're going to take them one at a time and we're going to kind of talk through them. Observation number one, if you want to write these down, this will help you. Observation number one, the solution to the problem was initiated by the pastors. It's the pastors who initiated the solution. Pastors are the apostles here. They were the leaders of the congregation, and we see them leading diligently. We see the congregation following their leadership. The apostles did not ask the congregation to come up with a solution. Now, I say that. We have a lot of different backgrounds of churches people have come from, and there are a lot of churches out there that have something called congregational rule. And they don't mean by that congregational participation, they mean by that that decisions are made by a majority, whatever that majority happens to be. It could be a simple majority, it could be a super majority, but they vote, and, and the voting by the congregation is where the authority lies. It's called, in church history, we just call it congregational rule. There are different forms of it. But it's congregational rule as opposed to elder rule. Congregations that have congregational rules still have elders, but the elders have to implement what the congregation votes for. I actually uh, have been a pastor in a congregationalist church, and I did enjoy uh, my year and a half there um, as an associate pastor. And uh, it was in Los Angeles. It was a very good and dedicated church, some blessed people. But they voted on everything. And when I mean everything, I mean everything. Everything that came up, it needed a vote. They were a smaller church. They would vote, and then the pastor and the deacons would implement whatever the greater will of the people were. Um, that form of church government, however well-intentioned, is backwards. God wants His chosen leaders leading too many churches, I'm afraid, have become a little too American in the way they look at leadership and government. They, they want to, uh, just like we vote people in or out in politics, right? We want to vote them in and out in the church as well. And they, they bring that American voter mentality into the congregation and they think, what better way than to just have a vote about it? Probably some of you think that way. Well, I can't think of a faster way for the less informed, the less mature the less connected, the less wise to lead the way and outnumber the more informed, the more mature, and the wiser than letting all of the congregants vote on important issues. I'm reminded of a movie that I saw. Many of you have seen it too, uh, Chariots of Fire. I kind of like that movie because I like athletic things. I like when it's a Christian movie and someone stands up for their faith. There's one scene in the movie where they're walking out of church and this younger man is complaining about some Christian teaching and there's an older man walking with him, and he says to him, the kingdom of God is not a democracy. And I said, that's exactly right. We in church are not part of a democracy. We're part of a kingdom. 
We are actually in the spiritual form of the kingdom now, the church, and we're going to see the full-blown manifestation of that kingdom. A kingdom is run by a king, and then a king chooses who he wants to be running the affairs of whatever area that it is, and he tells the rest of the people, you follow them because I told you to do that. That's what the church is. The church is part of a kingdom. There's a big difference between congregational involvement in solving a problem, which we do see here, than congregational rule or congregational leadership. The issue is not if the congregation should be part of a solution, but whether or not Jesus invested his authority in the majority vote in a congregation. And to that, I think the Scriptures are pretty clear. If you go to Scripture and let the the obvious statements of Scripture inform your theology, and that's the best way to do that, is form your opinion about something from the actual statements of Scripture, not from what's in the white spaces or what is kind of deduced from that, then you will find verses like Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, that says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. It's very clear. It's a church context. It's talking about the church leaders, the pastors. In 1 Peter 5, when Peter is exhorting the pastors, he tells them basically to take charge, but to do it gently. He says, I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God. That means that you're leading the flock of God and feeding the flock of God. And then he says, exercising oversight over them. You have to lead diligently and you have to exercise oversight. Going back to that passage in Hebrews 13, it talks to the congregation and says, you know, obey your leaders so that it's joyful for your leaders and it's not, it's not hard for your leaders to lead you. Don't be a hard uh, people to lead. To the Ephesian elders, Paul said in Acts 20, verse 28, the Holy Spirit made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. The shepherd is the leader of the sheep. That's inherent in the image itself. So the Holy Spirit chooses some to lead, and then the sheep are to follow that, what we call under-shepherd, under the authority of Christ. You will never find in the New Testament the elders or pastors being told, make sure you submit to the rule or decisions or wisdom of the congregation. What you find in places like Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Acts chapter 14, verse 23, and other locations is elders being appointed by other leaders in every church. And the people are told to follow their teaching, follow their rule, and their leadership. And again, I say those are the clear statements of Scripture, and we build our understanding of church from those things. That's the first observation, is that this solution came from the apostles, from the leaders. Second observation is that the apostles came to the congregation with a unified decision already. They came to their congregation. At the time that they gathered them, they'd already brought together their own minds, and they'd come to a unity decision. All 12 of them spoke with only one voice to their congregation. Now, what happened behind closed doors? <laughs> well, we're not given that insight here. We don't know how the discussion went, whether Philip, who was a little more administratively minded, took the lead on this particular subject, or whether Thomas had his usual doubts about things. You know, we don't know what happened with these 12. We can only speculate with that. But we do know that whatever they did, whatever they debated about behind, whatever their concerns were, let's handle it this way, let's handle it that way, that wasn't important. What was important is that when they came, they came submitted to one idea and that this was the idea that they were going to go with. Now, I don't personally believe that they had a hard time debating on this issue because they had a direct statement from their Lord, Jesus Christ, about what their role was as apostles. 
This was somewhere where they could go right to something Jesus said, and it was very obvious, and they said, look, Jesus told us to be the witnesses. Jesus told us to shepherd the people. Jesus told us to do the Word, so how are we going to do that and also do this, this growing need that is there that obviously if it's going to be done properly, someone needs to be there and have hands on and eyes on and make sure that it's done well. Otherwise, someone is going to be overlooked, and then it's going to cause more problems. We need someone to really do it well, and if it's going to be us, we're going to have to let go of this. So I don't think it was hard for them. I think they were all probably just nodding their heads in an apostolic circle of some kind. That's how I envision it. And saying, yeah, yeah, we got to get another tier of leaders here and there. So we got to do that. I think it was probably kind of a, a, an obvious thing. I love these little snippets in here because some of you out there don't live and breathe church like I do. And uh, we want to know, well, how did they deal with these kinds of things? Did they have meetings? And how did they solve them? And the answer is yes, they did. We're just kind of getting the results of that. So they followed the clear commands, and I think that that's another good example for the leaders. Anytime leaders are trying to solve a problem in church, how to deal with something, go to the things that are explicitly taught in Scripture and then work uh, from that. Don't go beyond the Scripture, uh, otherwise then you're, we're asserting our authority beyond the boundaries of Scripture. I, I believe that an elder's authority goes as far as the Scripture speaks and no further. And Where the Scripture doesn't speak, there, there is freedom, and I think that's important for uh, the elders or deacons and their delegated authority, decisions they're making, find what the Scripture says and derive a decision from, from what the Scripture explicitly says. That's the second observation. The third observation, the whole congregation was to be involved in the selection of leaders. The whole congregation was to be involved in the selection of the leaders. Notice that Peter says, select from among you Seven men of what? Good reputation. And then, you know, we're going to put them in charge of this tax. But your job is select from among you seven men. See that? Select from among you seven men. Select actually is the word that means oversee. And it means the congregation was to look out over their own congregation, which was very large at that time, look out over their own ranks and collectively decide who do we think are the capable men to kind of push forward for the apostles to appoint? Who was it that was already respected? Who was it that already had the right reputation? Who was it that had already proven themselves to be wise? Side note, if you're a man in the church and you're wondering, you know, should, what should I be doing with my life? Your life should be lived in the administration of your home and the administration of whatever you're doing in terms of your work and in terms of the church ministries that you're involved in. You should always strive to be someone who's showing themselves dedicated to Christ and wise there so that when the need arises, people can look at you and say, here is a man, here is a man who has the kind of character to lead. Okay, that's something I don't think that you should sit around and wait for somebody to say, hey, maybe you should think about being a deacon. I think that's something that every man should be thinking about and saying, what, how am I living my life? And if they needed to call on me, would I have the wisdom to be able to do that? I think, I think all men should try to be that way, in other words. But they were to look out and they were to use their, the teaching that they had received as a congregation, the wisdom that they had from that, and they were to select seven men. The leaders, obviously then, were to have enough trust in the congregation, this is a well-taught congregation, that they were able to tell who was and who was not ready to be their leaders. 
Whatever way that they would assess that or do that, they were to be, they were to be trusted. The elders were not to be parochial in that. The elders were not to be untrusting of the congregation. They, they were to trust their insights into leadership as well. In other words, this kind of goes along with Romans chapter 15 where Paul writes to the, to the Roman church and he says, you are competent to counsel one another. Well, if they're competent to counsel one another, they should be competent enough to have an opinion that would say, this is a man that's more like the kind of man we want to follow than, than this kind of a man and be able to discern that and see that. The people were, were competent to identify and push forward the right men. Now, how, how did that happen? We're not told. You know, just like we're not told how the apostles talked in back rooms or wherever they were, upper room, you know. We don't know how this congregation did this. This is thousands of people. How did they communicate? There must have been some clear lines where people could communicate with one another. There are scholars that point out that the Jews were very good at organizing. From the times of Moses where they broke all the tribes down and everything, they had this done. So it's pretty typical that there were already compartments and groups that they would go to. This was sort of one segment and another segment, and, and those people led them and talked to them, and information could kind of go up that way. So that's probably what happened. Uh, Alexander Strauch has written a book called The New Testament Deacon. It's a great book. We use it in the training of our deacons here. I don't agree with everything that he has in the book, but it's a great attempt to, to look at what the New Testament says about a deacon, and it doesn't say a whole lot, by the way, and to try to extract from it what deacons are supposed to be like. He writes this, exactly how the congregation in Jerusalem selected seven of its men is not recorded. It is quite possible that the congregation in Jerusalem was already organized into manageable units. Such organizations would enable issues to be decided and information to be passed along quickly, end quote. So please understand the congregation did not make the final decision, but they did choose the seven, and then they presented the seven to the apostles. And obviously the apostles thought that they made some good selections. The people presented the men, and then the apostles used their authority from Christ, notice, to put them in charge, put them in charge. The verb put in charge in Greek, katistemi, means in this context to put them into a formal office, to set them in place is the kind of the idea. To set them in place means now they're in a place of authority, they have an office. Office doesn't mean that you have a door with a sign over your name that says, here's your office. And you, that doesn't mean that. Office means a, a publicly recognized position. And so they, they were to be put into public office. So the authority to place in the public office was given not to the congregation, but to the elders of the local church. Now we go to our fourth observation. I told you there's a lot in here. These deacon-like leaders were to arise from within the body of believers. These deacon-like leaders were to arise from within the body of believers. Leaders must be believers that are seen by others and are in good standing in their church. Sometimes they're men that accomplish great things outside of the church, and they're known for their managing ability and all of that. But they need to be people that are inside the church, faithful inside the church, spotted, watched, and recognized by others in what they're doing here in the church as well. Not just people that in the world are known as great managers, but people that can demonstrate some spirituality in the way that they manage. Now, we have to state that it's a fact that there were no other churches in existence at this time for them to borrow leaders from. 
Sometimes people say we should never get, you know, a pastor or a deacon or another leader or hire someone from outside of our own local church. The, the scriptures don't restrict us that way, and that would be unnecessary to restrict us that way. Um, sometimes there's, there's smaller churches, and they don't have the, the resources in their church for something, and so they hire from another quality church, and they bring somebody, or some church has sent people to seminary, and they've got training, and they hire them in. That's perfectly legitimate. But in the case of deacons, probably more so then in any other case, it's a really good idea if you have the men, if you have the qualified men, if they're men that truly meet the qualifications, to choose those deacons from your own congregation as they did. Why? Because they are the ones who are going to have to be most in touch with what's going on with the people. Do you see that? They have to know the hurts and the sorrows and what's going on. They need to have some sympathy towards them. They need to have some relationship with them. They know how to move within them. And that, that just kind of makes common sense, doesn't it? That we know the people. We know what they're like. We know, we know where their needs are. We know how to anticipate things. We know where they live. And we're kind of connected to them in that way. And so that makes a lot of sense. And certainly, and I'll emphasize this point, whatever leaders there are, they must be believers. Right? We are so tempted as the organizational structure of a church grows to find somebody that has the skill to handle the structure of it. And indeed, they may have better skill than the people that we have that are saved in the church. Someone may have, you know, run Google or something like that. And you're like, well, that's the kind of a mind that we need. But there's a problem with that, obviously. If they're not a believer, this isn't just about efficiency. If you have to choose between efficiency and spirituality, you will always, 10 times out of 10, choose what? Spirituality. Okay, the guy doesn't run a meeting well, and he's always late. <laughs> but he loves the Lord, and he can minister to people and serve them, and he's the kind of man you think you can walk up to and say, hey... I don't know how to say this, but I think there's something going on in the church and I just need someone to talk to and I, I need a solution for that. And he may ramble and he may not be all that orderly, but he's a godly man. He's a man of God. And so that's the kind of person that we look for. We look for a believer, not just efficiency, although efficiency is nice. Well, I'm, not, I'm not against efficiency. We could use more of that here. But if we had to choose, we take a man of God. That leads us to our fifth observation. Still in verse 3, these proto-deacon leaders in this church, these seven, were to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. Do you see that? Full of the Spirit and wisdom. Listen, they had to have good character. This is so important for appointing leaders, and unfortunately, a lesson our elder board had to learn the hard way. But this is so crucial. And maybe you don't need any more said to you because some of you have already felt the pain of this. But the scriptures emphasize this, really emphasize this. Notice it doesn't say who have run an organization before. <laughs> it says men who are full of the spirit and of wisdom. Now, the wisdom part there does show that they had some ability to take truth and apply it. So it does show some skill that would be there. That word wisdom entails that. But they're really looking for men of good character. And, and they need to be proven to be men of good character before hands are laid on them. Yes? Amen. These seven men, if you think about this duty here, would be in charge of a lot of money. And they'd be in charge of a lot of people. And there would be lonely widows trying to talk to them all day long. 
and they'd have to know how to, how to get their stuff done and also be kind and gracious and, and give, you know, widow number one, widow number two, oh my goodness, is widow number seven coming? And they're wanting to be gracious and kind at the same time, they got stuff they got to get done. And they would have to know how to manage that. People, handle people, handle people graciously. They would have to be like that. By the way, they'd have to know a lot about details because if you mess up on the details, someone's going to be overlooked, yes? Well, we got those people in this line and this in line, but where's sister so-and-so? I haven't seen. Has anyone seen? Where's the records? Who's, who's been down to that? How's the communication going? That implies there would have to be some skill that is there. Do you know how many churches suffer because funds are not handled correctly? In my world, I hear about that all the time. So-and-so stole such-and-such. The pastor takes the money, the deacons take the money, and they run, right? Grab the church secretary, and they run, right? How many times do you hear that kind of a thing? I know church in the region here, that the whole church almost collapsed because the pastor was pilfering money. And uh, the pastor's brother had to step in, calm every down, everyone down, say, this is what we're going to do with the money. He was gone, obviously, and resettle and earn the trust of the people back again. There are so many churches that get ruined over the handling of money, how important it is to handle money properly. Money was going to be given to them, lots of money. It was essential. They never pilfer it. Some scoundrels these days, they take a little bit. They say, well, I just borrowed it. I was going to put it back. I was going to put it back. The Lord's money should never be used that way, right? This is the Lord's money. It all has to be above reproach. It's false teachers who swim in cash and then gloat about all they own. Not true men of God. They also needed wisdom. Why wisdom? Well, we touched on it already. Because wisdom is to know how to deal with people, to know how to deal with situations, to know how properly to solve a problem and not solve it in a way that will create another problem. You know what wisdom is? If you could define wisdom, what is it? It's applied biblical knowledge. It's taking knowledge of the Bible and applying it in the right way, in the right proportions, at the right time. A lot of people have biblical wisdom. They have their doctrines straight. They know, you know, they know what's heresy and they, they know what's, what's right and orthodox. But when it comes to the decisions in their parenting, where it comes to the decisions and how they relate to other people, they don't exercise wisdom. They, they, they overblow one thing and undersee something else. They don't know the right proportions. So men that are wise, that we think are wise, that we go to for our problem, that we seek out, because in your mind, you have your own understanding of what a, what a truly wise man is. Not a wise guy, but a truly wise man. What is he like? You have these attributes. He's going to listen. He's going to be able to understand what you're talking about. He's not going to give a quick solution where he didn't understand something. He's not going to overreact, right? He's going to have the right balance. He's going to bring this in and this in. And, and, and that's, what, that's what you're looking for in, in wisdom. Deacons that are like that. They need to know their people. They need to know their times in which they live. They need to know their culture in which they, they function and minister. First Chronicles chapter 12 and verse 32 talks about the sons of Ishakar and gives them this compliment. It says they were men who understood the times. Now, some people wish that they lived in other times. <laughs> I kind of do, actually. You know, I like the medieval stuff. I wish I could ride a horse and have all that stuff there and the sword, you know, and pull that out. I think that would be really cool, but... I don't live then, I live now. We need to understand our times. What's going on in our times? What's it like out there? Like I said, some people are solid in their doctrine, but they wrongly apply doctrine to their lives. These men should not lead in Christ's church. Sixth observation. I cannot see the clock back there, by the way. I have no idea what time it is right now. <laughs> clock died. Hang on. 
Oh, I got time. All right. <laughs> My dentist just texted me. Okay. That's going to throw me off. Sixth observation. They are to know their task. They are to know their task. It says that the apostles wanted to appoint them to this task. Notice that? Task is the term actually krea, which means need. We're going to appoint them to this need, and it means to fulfilling the need, thus the translation task, the task to fulfill the need. People need to know what their ministry description is. That's something we can do better in this church. We could do, I think we could do considerably better to make sure we know so many people have worn so many hats through the years and had to do things that they're not necessarily good at and all of that, and we would do better to keep working as, as a deacon board and as an elder board, and, and other people might help us with that to make sure we have good descriptions. But they knew, these seven knew exactly what they were supposed to do. The ministry was assigned to them. Here are the Hellenist widows, and they're being overlooked in the daily doling out of the... Of the uh, the, the cash and the food and, and whatever it is that they needed, they need to be cared for. So now they know their task. They know the boundaries of their assignment. They know what they're supposed to do. Everyone else would know whether or not they're doing their task as well, right? And it would be easy for everyone to have those clear lines. You know, churches that are older and more established and they've had a greater number of leaders and pastoral staff over a longer period of time, which we have not had, are able to write all of these kinds of things out. And they're able to help the church in that regard. We haven't had uh, the blessing of having uh, multiple pastoral staff. And so this is an area we're kind of, we're lagging in, and I think we could, we could improve in that. But it's an observation that when people are appointed, they know what they're supposed to do. Have you ever had a job, and you went into work, and you're excited about the new job, and you get in there, and you're getting told divergent things about what you're supposed to do? And you go and do one thing, and you're pretty happy because you did it well, and you get yelled at from another manager that you weren't doing this, and you're like, I didn't know I was supposed to do that. Tell me what I'm supposed to do up front. Or they tell you you're supposed to do that, then you get started with that, and they're like, hey, what are you doing in there? That causes confusion, it causes hurt, it, it's inefficient, and it can cause interpersonal problems as well. So there needs to be a line clear, what are we supposed to do and not supposed to do. Just so you know, the elder board and the deacon board are working on that right now. We're working on, these are elder-like issues that elders should take. These are deacon-like issues that deacons are to take and be trusted to take and to try to separate that because sometimes they're like this, you know, and they need to be a little bit more like this. Some issues require both boards to be involved in them because even here, you see the apostles get involved, they point, but then they back out, and then what would be the deacons would take over. Do you see that? And they run, they run things like that. If there was another issue that, that needed some some kind of elder guidance. It might come back up and the elders might decide, but then, then it was to be handled by the deacons that are there. All right, I got time for a seventh observation. They got the clock going again back there. Okay, good. The decision needs to bring together the entire church and not alienate a large portion of the church. Look at verse 5a. It says, the statement found approval with who? The whole congregation, not just the Hellenists or the Hebrews, you see, the whole congregation, and they chose. Found approval does not mean that the congregation voted, it just means that it was clear in some manner that the solution was readily received by the whole congregation without objection. Please see that because the entire church was brought together, this potentially divisive issue ended up being an issue where unity actually was expressed. Going out of this meeting, they may have even had tighter unity. 
So here you had something that, from a church leader's perspective, you might say, oh, bummer, we have a problem, (laughs) and uh, I wish we didn't have this problem. But the way the Holy Spirit works problems sometimes is he brings people together, they rally around the problem, and coming out of the problem, they actually express more unity than before, and that's indeed what happened here. The Hebrew believers now were standing shoulder to shoulder with the Hellenist believers to make sure that their widows received the same care that their own widows had. With this wise joint decision, the complaint from one quadrant of the church quieted down and unity was confirmed. Nobody, it appears, nobody was overlooked from here on out. No one was treated as a lesser sister or brother. All members of the church had the same care for each other. Isn't that what Paul writes in the passage on uh, the church being the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12? You know that passage, right? The church is many members, but what? One body, right? And in that passage, he says, all the members are to have the same care for one another. That's really what you're seeing in Acts chapter 6. They're learning how to do that. We're learning how to have the same care. There's always going to be difficulties with that. It's not simple and easy. Everyone doesn't come in thinking about other people all the time. It takes work. Love takes some thought and some work and some trial and error. But they learned how to do that here, and we can learn how to do that in our church uh, as well. That was short. I'm going with another observation. Eighth, choose leaders who have something to do with the problem. Choose leaders who have something to do with the problem. These seven that were chosen were all, all seven, Hellenistic Jews. Not one of them was a Hebrew Jew. Their names are given in the latter part of verse 5 there on into verse 6. Every name in that list is Greek, not Hebrew. The Greek speakers would know better who the needy widows were, who was helping each widow, who was the the caregiver, in other words, what the background was of the widow. Um, Were they really in need? Was someone kind of schmoozing the system? They would know. They, They would be trusted, too, to sympathize with the weaknesses of these widows most likely. Dr. MacArthur writes, since the Hellenistics felt slighted, the church decided to appoint seven from among them to rectify the situation. A split was thus avoided, and again, Satan's attack was thwarted. End quote. If we utilize this wisdom, I think it'll benefit us more. People who are concerned with solving a problem. And beware, by the way, if you come up to to one of the pastors to me and say, you know what's wrong with this church, pastor? Because I'm already thinking how to boomerang that back to you, you know? (laughs) We need such and such. I'm like, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to solve this? Because people that are most concerned with an area, we don't have anything for such and such in our church. You're right, we don't. Uh, I'm tempted to tell some stories of things in the past of people I had to tell them, no, we don't have that in the church. Some of those people stuck in the church and then helped to solve whatever it was that we didn't have. Well, I think that's, that's good wisdom, that people that see that there's an area that's being overlooked, they have more energy for that. They have more oomph from that. Maybe God has, has quietly moved them in that direction to say, maybe you're one of the ones that needs to help to solve that, you see. After all, aren't we one body? Aren't we one family? Why does it always have to be the guys up front that solve it? We can give some solution to it, but then that solution has to involve people, and those people then have to be able to sustain the ministry that's there. So only seven 
Hellenists were chosen. Why seven, by the way? Why seven men? I mean, this is a church that had probably 15,000, 20,000 people in it. How were seven men going to do this? Well, they were going to oversee. That means they probably would have had assistance under them. Deacons can have assistance. Deacons can have people that are learning ministry from them, that they're pouring a little bit of their time into them, helping them to learn the ropes of ministry, helping them to see the kinds of conundrums and problems and things like that. They should really have people that they're beginning to see that, hey, here's some, uh, here's some guys that we could have come along and, and they could learn ministry and, and, and then eventually maybe their names kind of arise as people that are put forth to be, hey, here's, a, here's someone that could be a deacon candidate. That can happen there. But uh, why seven men? It, it, it's not so that we would follow this as a commanded pattern. I think some people will read too much into a kind of a historical uh, narrative here and say, well, we should only have seven deacons and never any more than seven deacons. And if one guy dies, we need to immediately fill it, you know, that kind of thing. But the number seven is not given so that it's a pattern that we follow the number seven. The number seven in Scripture, I think you know when it's used, if it has a meaning, and I think many, many scholars believe it does have a meaning, it has the meaning of fullness or completion. That is, seven is the fullness. You find the, the seven bowls in Revelation and the seven trumpets. You know, this is the full pouring out of God's wrath is the idea. The seven churches in Revelation is a, is a splattering of the churches, but it means to represent the whole of the church, the universal church. So it kind of has that idea that they gave this solution a full solution. They didn't give it just a little, a little nod. They, they gave enough leaders to make sure that uh, the solution was really taken care of. Now, who were these men? We're only going to begin to get started with this. Uh, you know, we won't get into all of this, but who were these men? Well, the names are supplied, thankfully, right there in verse 5. First, Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Stephen is listed first. Why? Because Stephen becomes in the narrative to follow the most dominant person. In fact, if you go on and read the end of chapter 6 and into chapter 7, he becomes the focal point. He actually becomes the first Christian martyr. He becomes the first Christian, the first follower of Jesus to have his life taken from him because he refused to compromise and he stood for the name Jesus. He is killed for his Christian faith. And that's going to break out there at the end of chapter 7 and into chapter 8 when we read about Saul, who becomes the Apostle Paul. And he is described as a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. Full of comes from the verb plerao in Greek, and it means to be permeated by the characteristic that follows. Full of the Spirit means he's characterized by the Spirit of Jesus. When you look at this man, what you think of is there is a man who lives his life with the priorities and the Spirit of Jesus Christ inside of him. He's full of the Spirit. In Acts 13, 52, it says the disciples there were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. That's that same verb, plerao. It talks about a continual fullness that, that was in their lives. They were always full of joy and full of the Holy Spirit. In Acts eleven twenty four, it says of Barnabas that he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit. Plerao, that word full of, doesn't mean an immediate pouring in. 
You know, we've heard about Peter who was filled with the Spirit suddenly and the apostles that were filled with the Spirit suddenly and they would speak prophetically. That's a different verb that's used in Greek there. That's pimplami. But here, plerao has to do with something that's continuous. Peter could be filled and then not filled and then he'd be filled again and not filled depending on when he needed to speak. That was sort of his empowerment to be able to speak the Word of God. But here is something that has more to do not with speaking but has more to do with character. It has more to do with the, the permeation of Christ-like character in the person's life. When you're full of the Spirit, people know you to be full of the Spirit, not just for one moment while you're standing in front of the church and speaking, but they can see about your life that that's how you live your life. You're, you're about Jesus Christ. You're full of the Spirit. It means to be permeated. It means to be influenced by, characterized by, moved along by Not the spirit of the world, not the spirit of jealousy, not the spirit of covetousness, but the spirit of God. And that means this kind of fullness of the spirit comes into a life more gradually. It comes in degrees as one yields to Jesus Christ more and listens to the teaching and makes decisions about his or her life and says, I want to be known more as a person of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus. I want it to be more than just things that I know in my head. I want to be known how I live this way. Unlike special fillings to empower people, they want all the time to be full of the Spirit. This is the same verb that is used in Ephesians 5.18 where it commands all believers, be full of the Holy Spirit. Actually, the way that command is there, it means be being full of the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's a passive command, which is a weird thing. When you have a passive command, it means let something happen to you. Let it go ahead and happen to you. Let the Spirit take over more of your life. Let the Spirit control more of your thinking and your decisions. Quit resisting the Holy Spirit and give in and let Him take over. Well, Stephen was a man like that. He was full of the Spirit. The Spirit had come to him. Yes, the Spirit is inside every believer. But with Stephen, the Spirit had overtaken him, had overtaken the way he lives. He wasn't resistant. He wasn't trying to live his life for him and give religion only its little due. He said, I want to be known as a follower of Christ. And he was. What a great example for us. Instead of thinking of this filling like you fill your gas tank, you know, it's all filled good, I'm on my way, or you you fill a cup of coffee, think of it more slowly permeating your life and saying, Lord Jesus, take over more of my life. That's what this man of God did, and evidently for the congregation, it wasn't too difficult to choose him. The fact that his name is at the head of the list speaks even more of the character of this unique man. He was full of wisdom. Stephen was also full of faith, and I'll close with this. All believers have faith, do they not? Do you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Did you know that faith in and of itself is a measure of confidence? It says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. When you know you have faith, you have a degree of confidence that that God is working in your life and that the Bible is true and his promises are true, correct? That faith itself has put in you confidence, but there are some people that are full of faith. I have faith. There's some people I've talked to, and after talking with them, I've said, now that's a guy or a a gal. Sometimes it's a woman full of faith. You could just tell they're full of faith. Let's go do such and such. Well, wait a minute. Slow down, sister. You know, we might get in trouble there. And you're like, no, 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 no. It's like Joshua and Caleb. Let's take the land. Who cares if they're giants there? They're full of faith. 
that Stephen, you will see him charge into the preaching that he did in his own synagogue, and he's going to be dragged in front of the Sanhedrin, and they're going to, he's even going to convict them of their sin standing in front of them, and they're not going to tolerate him, and they're going to pull stones out, and they're going to stone him to death, but it did not shake his faith. Boy, do we need people like this. If you are someone strong in faith, you need to persevere because oftentimes the people around you will discourage your faith. They'll say, that's reckless. We can't do that yet. But we need people that are full of faith. Romans chapter 12 and verse 3 says that God has allotted to each believer a measure of faith. God gives to some more. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9, it speaks of the gift, the spiritual gift of faith. Some that have that gift of faith urge the church on. Think of more things that you can do. Make sure you're obedient. Stephen was that kind of man. We'll pick up next week with Philip. I don't want to shortchange him, but we'll get to Philip second on the list and the rest of these, these uh, godly men next time. Let's go ahead and close in prayer and we'll, we'll go to our celebration of the Lord's Supper. Our God, we confess to you we're not often full of wisdom, full of your spirit, full of faith. We would pray that you would help us to yield our lives more, to study the details of scripture that we might gain greater wisdom from it, that we might see in your word great wisdom. Lord God, we, we would pray that our elders and deacons will be men who understand their calling and fit their calling. We pray that you would motivate our whole congregation as well to be looking out over the needs of this church and over potential leaders and we work together as a unit to please you, all under our chief shepherd and our good shepherd, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we've prayed, amen.